Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Friends, welcome on this Friday evening to Praying for America. I'm Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life, and I welcome you here. It's great to be talking about the things that make America great. We're talking about various policies that put America first. We're talking about the biblical roots of those policies. And tonight we really get to the core of some key policies defending our freedoms, basic freedoms, life, religious liberty, How do we incarnate this into the policies of America? And when we look back at the accomplishments made under the greatest presidency, that of President Trump, we see how it actually looks. In fact, we've lived through it. We should make sure we do not easily forget. So we're going to look at all all of that kind of thing tonight, including a great update on a religious liberty victory. We actually have been having a lot of those lately. So let's get right into things here, and I want to go to the 16th chapter of Luke, because this has to do with defending that most basic right, which is life itself, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Starting with verse 19 in Luke 16, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate lay a beggar named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. He longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even dogs used to come and lick his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham answered, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus likewise received what was bad. But now he is comforted here, but you are in torment. And besides all this, Between us and you there is fixed a great chasm, so that those who may wish to cross from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Oh no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone comes back to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Let us pray. Father, you bless us with many good gifts. And you also bless us with the opportunity to help our neighbor. You bless us with life. And you give us the opportunity to protect the lives of our neighbors. Help us to understand our duties to those less fortunate. 
Help us to understand what it means to intervene for the poor, the helpless, the unborn. Help us to understand, Father, what it means when your Son teaches us that whatsoever we do for the least of our brothers and sisters, we do for him. And may we create policies, Lord, and may we elect leaders willing to create policies that indeed enable us to save and to help one another. We ask this in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. So friends, looking at this parable, what was it that caused the rich man to be condemned? Was it the fact that he was rich? Was it the purple linen that he dressed in or the feasts on which he indulged every day? No, those, those, that's not what condemned him. It was the fact that he ignored the other man. Lazarus was, was, was there begging. He ignored him. And this is what brought him condemnation. The failure to respond to the other person. The mistake of thinking that because the other person had less, that he was worth less. The parable teaches us our responsibilities. Now, it doesn't mean that government has the responsibility to take the place of what individuals, families, and churches and ministries do to feed the poor. Government needs to make it easier for those ministries to do that. And that's one of the policies that we'll be talking about under this umbrella of freedom, inequality, and self-governance. But it does mean that government has certain basic responsibilities, such as the protection of life itself and the, the duty to make it possible for people to have the basic necessities of life. And this ties in with the duties in this parable too. People exercise these duties to protect life and to help and intervene for the helpless in various ways. And those who are elected to public office exercise it in ways whereby their policies that they pursue either hurt or help. Now, it can be a matter of dispute whether they, in fact, hurt or help. But the point is, one has to make his or her best judgment and be motivated by the fact that their policies need to be helping. We're going to go into some of the concrete examples of this. Now, this is under the rubric of the third pillar that we are talking about of America First policies rooted in Scripture. Restore America's historic commitment to freedom, equality, and self-governance. And when we talk about freedom, we're talking about, first of all, possessing what our Declaration calls certain unalienable rights, starting with life. You can't have freedom without life. Life has got to be defended. It's an absolute, it's a precondition for all the other rights. In fact, let's go to the board and, and, and trace out some of this visually because it is so basic. The protection of life. There's a reason why the founders mention it first in the Declaration. Because when you talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, 
you can't have liberty without life. And you can't pursue happiness without life. Nor can you pursue happiness without liberty. But life is the foundation of it all. So protecting life is foundational. Every other good, every other right, every other activity depends on the protection of life. You might be working for the right to health care. You might be focused on the need to provide good education, right to work, to vote, protection from terrorism, etc. Terrorism or crime, right? First of all, or, or you may be caring for the poor. Um, first of all, there is no good that you can possess, either in terms of freedom, activities, or possessions themselves without being alive, nor do any of these other things even have importance if life isn't important? Let's look at this from two angles. First, if you take away a person's life, you've taken away their health care, their education, their work, their vote. You've taken everything away along with it. And secondly, if you ask, why is it important, for example, to help the poor? Well, because they have a right to food and clothing and shelter. Well, why do they have a right to those things? Because they have a right to live. Why is unemployment important to be concerned about? Well, if you uh, don't have a job, then you know, you're being deprived of your right to earn a living. Why do you have a right to earn a living? Because you have a right to live. The right to live is philosophically the foundation and reason why all these other issues are issues in the first place. So that's why... The right to life is called foundational as opposed to being the only issue. No, no issue is the only issue. But at the heart of every issue, there is an issue, which is the right to life. It's at the heart of every issue. It's what makes an issue an issue. Whether a concern should be a concern or should get any of our attention depends on how it imp impacts human life. All right, so that's the first consideration. Now, when you look at the protection of our basic rights, basic freedoms, we've already looked at what it means to be protected from tyranny. We've looked at what it means to govern ourselves. What concrete policies does this resolve into? And we're going to put just a few here. All of these, of course, deserve their own uh, presentation. But religious liberty is, um, well, first of all, we already said, let's put this one first. Honor the sanctity of every human life. Two questions about that we should ask right away. 
who are the most vulnerable and what takes most human life. There are about There are about a million abortions in the United States every year. It has gotten up to a high of 1.6 million a year. Just take an internet search of the leading causes of death in America, and you'll see that nothing tops abortion. That doesn't mean it's listed there. You need to look up the abortion statistics separately And then realizing that each abortion takes a human life, then you go look at the leading causes of death, and you'll find that none of those numbers reach the numbers that abortion reaches. Who are the most vulnerable? The unborn. And by the unborn, we don't mean those who will be born 100 years from now. We mean the ones who are living right now in the womb. They're the most vulnerable. You see a video, short video clip of one of these unborn children at the beginning of each of our programs, people don't realize how real they are. It's not a theory. It's not an idea. It's an actual person moving around, sucking her thumb, stretching, waking and sleeping in the womb. So honoring the sanctity of each human life, foundational principle for these policies. Secondly, defending our constitutional right of religious freedom and freedom of conscience. It's constitutional. It's mentioned right there in the Bill of Rights. It's in the First Amendment. Our constitutional right to, and we're putting this in two different expressions here, uh, religious liberty and freedom of conscience. So let's say a little word about what what, what all this is rooted in. You and I are not machines. You and I are not things. A thing, this marker, for example, can be bought and sold, can be thrown in the garbage, can be moved around. It doesn't have a say in what it does. Part of our human dignity is that we do. We have a say in terms of what we do and why we do it and where we go and how we live. We can't be bought and sold because we're not a possession. We're not an object. We are, each of us, a person. And part of the dignity Uh, that each person possesses, not that we are given by anybody else, but that we possess by the very fact that God created us, is that we have a conscience. Now, the conscience is our mind. It's not some kind of um, mystical, magical voice inside of us, or some spirit or something like that. Think very realistically about this, brothers and sisters. You're doing something, and and, then you get the idea, maybe, well, what's the next thing that I should do? Or maybe I should do this, or maybe I should do that. Well, you're thinking. 
and you're evaluating the pros and cons of the next decision you're going to make, right? I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go here. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to watch this TV program. I'm going to call this person. And you're, we're always deciding what's the next thing we're going to, to do, okay? That's our mind at work. But as your mind is at work thinking about what the next thing is that you're going to do, you're thinking about not just the possibilities of it, the benefits of it, the cost of it in terms of time or money. You're thinking about the risk of it. You're also thinking about, is it right or is it wrong? And your mind is going to answer that question. Gee, this is wrong because it's cheating another person or it's hurting another person or I'm failing in my duties towards another person. All these thoughts might go through your mind to decide whether you are or aren't going to do a certain thing, make a certain phone call, watch a certain program, go to a certain place or connect with a certain person. Friends, it's simply your mind. But your mind asking a very specific question, is it right or is it wrong for me to do this next thing? That's conscience. Conscience, though, works only when our mind is well informed about what's right and wrong. See, because this is the other the other piece of the puzzle. Where do where does our mind, which our conscience is, get the information about what's right and what's wrong? Well, what standard are we using? For some people, the standard is nothing other than what they decide. So in that case, there is no moral standard. It's just whatever you want. For some people, that's what, what the source of morality is. For others, it's like, well, wait a minute. There's, there's commandments. There's basic moral precepts. Uh, they're agreed on by civilization. You don't steal. You don't kill. And they actually do also come from God. In fact, he has, if we're a Bible-believing people, we see the Ten Commandments there. They're written out for us. They tell us. Go here, go there, do this, do not do that. So the mind has to be educated. The conscience has to be formed. This is what we call formation of conscience. You learn the moral law. And then having learned that, you apply that moral law to a certain decision. So if you know it's wrong to steal, and you're about to do something, you have to ask, well, is this, does this constitute stealing or does it not? And sometimes those kind of evaluations are easy to, to, to answer and self-evident. Now, other times it's not so easy and you have to do a little bit more thinking or gathering of information and you might want to hold off until you, uh, before you do it. What's the role of the government here? There was a nurse in Vermont who made it clear to the medical facility at which she worked that she did not believe in abortion and she didn't ever want to be involved in an abortion. They forced her to do so anyway. She made a complaint to the Department of Health and Human Services under President Trump's administration. The administration followed up on that complaint and told that medical facility, respect this woman's rights. Gave them plenty of chance to uh, turn around, but then said, okay, well, if you're not going to respect her rights, neither are you going to get any government funding. They were serious about this, and they intervened in other cases too. What is the government's responsibility? The government's responsibility is to protect 
our constitutional right to live according to our conscience. If that nurse is saying, it's not just something she's believing inside herself. She's telling those responsible for her employment, I don't believe in abortion and I don't want to be forced to participate in it. That has to be respected. And brothers and sisters, we already do have a lot of protection under federal law and under various state laws to our freedom of conscience. We've got to make sure that stays secure. Oh, and by the way, the Biden administration tossed that case out. The Biden administration stopped defending that nurse. Hello? You guys have a problem with the Constitution? You guys have a problem with freedom of conscience? You have a problem with human dignity that says, I'm not a marker? I'm not a cog in the wheel? Just because I work in this facility, it doesn't mean you can just pluck me up over here and put me over there because there's an abortion that has to be done. And so I'm here and I'm getting a paycheck. Well, I'm just going to pick you up. I'm going to put you over here, cog in a wheel, you know, machine in the, in the, in the, in the chain of, of, of production. And you just have to do that. And I couldn't care less what you think or feel on the inside. No government is supposed to care because again, this is protected by the constitution and It's not just that it's protected by the Constitution, which is pretty serious in and of itself, but it's part of human dignity. That's freedom of conscience. Now, a person can have a conscience and should be free to observe it, even aside from religious considerations. Notice the distinction I'm making here. There are a lot of people who want to act morally and believe that there's a right and a wrong way of acting who don't necessarily couch that in religious terms. That's okay. Nobody's telling them they have to couch it in religious terms. It's just a freedom of conscience. My mind telling me what's right and wrong. That has to be respected. Many Americans go further and say, well, I I have the freedom of religious worship, yes but also religious activity and all the other aspects of my life. And let me make that distinction. You've got religious activity and you've got spiritual life. Is there a difference between these things? Friends, there's a difference. Religious, and now they're connected, obviously. But religious activity, well, for example, you pray, you go to church, the church of your choice, you read the Bible, you, as if you're Catholic, you might say the rosary, whatever it might be, these are specific identifiable activities that are religious in nature, and those activities are fostering your spiritual life. Now, when we say spiritual life, here we're talking about one simple question. Am I going closer to God or farther away? You see, because everything we do, whether we're in church or at the dinner table, or at our desk at work, 
or running in the park, jogging in the morning, or whatever we're doing, wherever we are at any time of the day or of the year, our decisions, our activities, my friends, are either bringing us closer to God or farther away. That's what we call our spiritual life. In other words, it's your life. Your spiritual life is your life in relationship to God. You can look at your life in relationship to all kinds of things. You look at your life in relation to your wife. You look at your life in relation to your children. Look at your life in relation to your work. What's the lens you want to use to evaluate how your life is going? You look at your life in relationship to God. That's your spiritual life. So your religious activity hopefully is nurturing your spiritual life. Your spiritual life might be leading to some religious activity, but they're not the same. Religious activities are, you know, specific times and places. They start, they end. You know, we don't spend most of our time doing religious activities unless you're, you know, a monk living in a monastery. Uh, and even then, you've got all kinds of activities aside from religious activities. You might be plowing the fields and, you know, planting, uh, planting uh, uh, grain or whatever it might be. Okay, so what am I saying? Religious liberty is not just going to whatever church I want to go to. It includes that. The law should not say you've got to go to a Catholic church instead of an evangelical church, or even that you have to, you have to believe in Christ, you know, rather than, for example, uh, observing the Jewish faith. Law, law is not supposed to get into that kind of thing. It's supposed to provide you the liberty to go to whatever church you want, or even not to go at all, to read the Bible or not, etc. But it's also more than the religious activities. It's supposed to allow you to lead your life in such a way. Let's bring this all together here now. It's supposed to allow you to lead your life in such a way that you are convinced that everything you're doing is bringing you closer to God, not farther away. What you're doing at work, what you're doing when you're driving your car, what you're doing when you're going to the, the movie theater, whatever it is. Do I have the freedom to live my life in such a way that I can always get closer to God as I understand him and as my religion presents him to me? Because if not, then what we're saying is that the law, and, and the question we have to ask is, should this ever be allowed, is that the law forces you to choose between following the law or following your faith. We should never be put in a situation, and our Constitution offers the guarantee that this system of government, if it's faithful to what it was founded to be, would never put us in a situation where we have got to choose between these two. We always need to be able to do both.
We should always be able to follow and obey the law and live out our faith. We have a lot more about this to go into, and we'll continue with this in a future program. But I just wanted to lay the groundwork for this very, very fundamental constitutional freedom that we have, because then it leads to all kinds of policies, friends, all kinds of policies that either reinforce this or, or destroy it. Let's go back and sit down and we'll conclude with some some prayer time. I'm going to give you in uh, some of the upcoming uh, episodes um, uh, some examples of how we've had to live through this in our own ministry. We, we were put in a position where we had to choose between following the law and following our faith. We decided to follow our faith. And guess who changed the requirement of the law for us? That's why I have his picture there. We, ran, we won a victory recently. I say we in a generic sense, uh, um, and we'll get into this more in uh, a subsequent program. But doctors who do not believe in um, performing sex change um, surgeries, should they be free to follow their conscience? Or should they be forced to violate their conscience? The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals judged in a case recently in favor of the doctor's freedom of conscience. That, brothers and sisters, is what's consistent with the Constitution, not the other way around. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that we are human beings with dignity and with a conscience, that we're not cogs in a wheel, we're not objects, we're not things, we are people. We have freedom. We know you. We're free to have a relationship with you that makes us different from the animals, different from the mountains, different from the chair we sit in. We have a relationship, oh God, with you, and we know it. And we can choose to increase it, and we can embrace you. We can come close to you, and we can praise you. This is part of our dignity. And we thank you for it, and we thank you that we live in a nation that recognizes that this, is, this matters. This is important. This, this, this is part of who we are. We thank you for leaders, Lord, and whether it's judges in the courts or presidents like President Trump or, or governors. Or we, we thank you for leaders who recognize what religious liberty is about and freedom of conscience and who respect it and protect it. Government is not supposed to be judging our faith. It's supposed to be giving us the freedom to live it. Increase that freedom, protect that freedom. And may we always fight valiantly for that freedom, for ourselves, Lord, and for our children. Now we pray in the words that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, friends, thanks. Have a great weekend. Spread the word about our program. Please connect with us on social media. I'm at FR Frank Pavone, as you always can see at the bottom of the screen there. And uh, you can find me on the major platforms. Make sure you're on Truth Social. On Getter, who we are, we're grateful to for broadcasting our programs. And, of course, connect with Right Side Broadcasting, who also broadcasts our program. They're at RSB Network. 
on the social media as well. Thank you. And remember what President Trump says, you and I belong to the greatest political movement in American history. Let's continue putting America first, making America great and uh, and moving public policy in the direction that will increase, not decrease our freedom. God bless you. Father Frank Pavone here. Talk to you next week. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.